we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, keeping with its tradition of having a tendency to act incrementally, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee today announced that it was leaving interest rates unchanged, uh, which was the consensus. There was an 80% probability that the Fed would leave interest rates unchanged. The other 20% was that they would cut rates. So there was a 0% probability that the Fed would increase rates. But before delivering an official rate cut, what the Fed wanted to do was prepare the markets in advance and take one step in that direction, which was to tweak its language to officially adopt a bias towards easing which is exactly what the Fed did. The Fed basically acknowledged that the economic data had been weakening and that they wanted to do what was appropriate or that they were willing to do what was appropriate to uh, sustain the expansion. Now, they didn't come right out and say that the economy is headed for recession, even though that's exactly what is happening. They said they wanted to see more data before they moved. But after they failed the cut rates, Uh, The probability for a rate cut in July, which is the very next time the Fed meets, rose to 100%. So they took the 20% probability for the cut in June. Since we didn't get it, they added that, the markets added that to the 80% probability of a cut in uh, July, which means the markets are convinced that whatever data the Fed sees between now and the July meeting 
is going to be bad, that it's not going to be good data, which of course it is going to be bad data. I mean, the data has been bad. The economy has been weakening. We've been seeing a series of weakening economic data. You know, the economy is not just slowing down. It is headed to recession. That is something that the Fed will never admit. But look at what we got on Monday. We got the Empire State Manufacturing Survey, and the previous month was 17.8. And the consensus was for a pretty sharp move down to a positive 10. Instead, the index dropped all the way down to negative 8.6. Now, I'm told that that is the biggest drop in one month in the history of this survey. And it is the first time that number has been negative since Donald Trump was elected, right? Not since he was inaugurated, which was January of 2017, but since he was elected in November of 2016. Because October, the month before Trump was elected, that was the last time the Empire State Manufacturing Survey was negative. And then as soon as Trump won the election, the markets got optimistic that we were going to get tax cuts and deregulation and all kinds of good things were going to happen. And the market started to improve. Well, now the Empire State Manufacturing Survey is all the way back down to where it was before Trump was elected, and we are, in, we are now, the sage has been set for the recession. The recession that would have started in 2017, but for the election of Donald Trump. Now that recession is likely to start this year or next year. In fact, if the Fed does cut rates, which again, there's a 100% probability that they will, and that's another reason that the Fed is going to cut rates, and another reason why it didn't cut rates this time is because the Fed likes to do what the markets expect. It doesn't want to throw any curveballs, right? It wants to give throw the pitch right over the plate, right down the middle, so the market can hit it. And so since the, the, the markets only had a 20% probability of a rate cut for June, the Fed didn't cut. Well, now they have a 100% probability of a cut in July, so the Fed is going to cut. But if you look back historically... Within six months of the first cut, there is a recession. Now, a lot of people are in denial right now because they want to pretend that the cut is just for insurance, right? We just want to make sure that we don't have an economic downturn. So we're cutting rates just in case. That is just wishful thinking. And of course, that's always what the Federal Reserve says. The Federal Reserve never says we're cutting rates because the economy is headed into recession because if they said that, they're afraid that the economy will go into recession just based on their forecast. So they would rather try to pretend that it's an insurance policy. Hey, we don't think we're going to have a recession, but just in case, we're going to do this so we don't have one for sure. And they're hoping to influence the markets because now the markets will say, okay, great, we just took out some insurance against a recession, so now I don't have to worry about one because the Fed just made sure that we weren't going to have one. No, that's not what's going on. The Fed is cutting because it knows the economy is headed into recession and it doesn't want to be that far behind the curve. It wants to start cutting now. Now, of course, if they get lucky, right, if they cut rates now and somehow they avert a recession, well, then great. Or maybe what the Fed ends up doing is delaying the onset of that recession, which is a victory for the Fed. You know, one of the things that Powell said today is that 
uh, the Federal Reserve, you know, wants to keep the expansion going, right, as long as possible. The problem is this expansion is a bubble. And the only thing that's keeping it going is the Fed. It's an expansion that was created by the Fed, created by cheap money, and it needs more cheap money to survive longer. But the problem is all of this is destructive for the U.S. economy. That's what no one wants to admit. Keeping this expansion going is like sustaining a drug habit that maybe you feel good you know, while you're high on drugs, but ultimately you are undermining your health uh, and the best thing to do would be to kick the habit and go through the withdrawal, but we're not going to do that. And in fact, Donald Trump, right, when he was a candidate for president, he understood this, right? He 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 pointed out that Janet Yellen was keeping interest rates artificially low. And the reason that she was doing that was to artificially stimulate GDP to get the stock market to go up, to blow air into a bubble, to make Obama look good. And Trump talked about the fact that this was bad for the economy, that this was something that was being done just superficially to make Obama look good. But the long-term effects, according to Trump, were going to be negative. I mean, that's the reason that he gave for not reappointing Janet Yellen, right? Because she did all this political stuff and he was supposed to be a game changer. He was supposed to drain the swamp. He was supposed to put a hard money guy in. And remember some of the people he interviewed, like John Allison, I forget who else, but there were people who were advocating gold standards, you know, hard money, right? That's why he was getting rid of Janet Yellen. But now he's upset that Powell is not doing exactly what Janet Yellen did. In fact, there were all these rumors that came out I think yesterday or some leaks that Trump was considering demoting Powell, I guess not firing completely, but taking him, you know, no longer Fed chairman, just put him down as a as a board member. And maybe maybe he would have put Bullard up there. I don't know, because Bullard today was the only dissent. Everybody voted uh, to keep rates unchanged in June and Bullard wanted to cut right away. He wanted to cut in June. And that's probably what Trump wanted. In fact, when he was asked at a press conference um, yesterday, you know, do, do you still want to demote Powell, right? His answer wasn't, well, I can't demote him. You know, he's there. He has, a, he has a term. I can't, you know, I can't mess with that. The Fed is independent. What Donald Trump's answer was to that question was, let's see what he does tomorrow. <laughs> and obviously he didn't cut rates, so he didn't do what Trump wanted. Now he did open up the door. There is a 100% probability that we're going to get a rate cut in July. In fact, there's probably only one thing that could potentially prevent that rate cut. And that would be a trade deal with China that uh, people believe is a good deal if it results in the elimination of the tariffs and if it causes the markets to make new highs. And so that's probably the only thing that would derail the, the rate cut, which probably means that there's no way it's going to happen. I mean, I don't think we're going to have a trade deal anyway, but I think Trump knows this, right? So obviously what Trump wants to do, if he wants a rate cut, which he does, he needs to make sure that there's no trade deal, that the tariffs remain in effect at a minimum until the Fed meets in July and cuts rates because he doesn't want to derail that rate cut. So if he wants to have his rate cut and a trade deal, if he wants both, right, he has to make sure he gets the rate cut first 
because if he gets the trade deal first, it may prevent the rate cut. Now, of course, the rates are going to be cut anyway, because even if we get a BS trade deal that causes the market to rally uh, and, and people to be more optimistic, it's not going to stop the recession from coming. That's inevitable. We're going to have a recession. It's just that Trump wants to get the rate cuts as soon as possible, right? Because he's got his eye on 2020 and he wants the Fed to be acting now to do everything that it can to try to blow enough air into this bubble to keep it from popping in, uh, you know, before the next election. So what he's going to want to do is make sure that we get the rate cuts out of the way. And then if the markets need more stimulus, if the rate cuts are not enough to lift the stock market, then he can deliver, you know, the second punch, which would be the, the trade deal. So first we got to get the rate cuts and then we might get the trade deal. But even if we get all of that, I still don't think it's going to be enough uh, to stop this bubble from deflating. Now, normally the most interesting part of the, um, you know, the, the announcements, the rate announcements is the press conference that uh, comes a half hour after we get the official decision. We get the official uh, release of what the Fed's doing at 2 o'clock Eastern time, and then 2.30, we get the press conference, and then we get, you know, the, we, the Q&A is more important because what Powell basically does is he reads the statement, and then he gets a bunch of questions. And I didn't really see uh, or hear that many interesting questions. Probably the one that was the most interesting, and I don't remember who asked the question, but it had to do with whether or not the Fed was willing to up its inflation target from 2% to 4%. Now, of course, when the Fed spoke about its inflation target and Powell wrote about it, it was included in the language, they always now say their symmetrical 2% target, right? This is the new word. And symmetrical simply means that it's above 2%, right? And they did that because they want to move the bar. They always want more inflation. So now they want symmetrical inflation, which means they want inflation of 2.5% or 3% to make up for all the years we had 1.5% or 1%, which is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, but the Fed is trying to give itself more room to keep on printing money and keeping interest rates artificially low. So this reporter uh, asked if he would up the rate to 4%. And oh, by the way, part of the official statement was the Fed uh, mentioned that it was concerned about the pace at which inflation was returning to its 2% symmetrical goal, meaning that the Fed wants more inflation, that inflation is picking up, but not fast enough for the Fed. Again, that also lays the foundation for future rate cuts because they want more inflation, and that's a way to get it. But when this reporter asked Powell if the Fed was considering moving the target to 4%, Powell did say, no, we weren't considering that. But what he didn't say was, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. I mean, 4% inflation would be a very, very high amount of inflation. I mean, remember, 4% was the inflation rate, the official rate that caused Richard Nixon to impose wage and price controls. Now, that was a mistake, but you wouldn't expect a president to do something that drastic, right? I mean, to panic like that, that draconian a measure. I mean, inflation must have been a huge concern for the federal government to have mandatory wage and price controls. 
right? And now this guy is flippantly saying, hey, would the Fed just target 4% as the ideal rate of inflation? And of course, if we still measured inflation using the same CPI that we had when, you know, uh, Richard Nixon was president, right? If we still had that CPI, we probably already have inflation north of 4%. So to get inflation at 4% now, the way it's measured, I mean, you're probably talking 10% inflation. And, and But Powell didn't say that would be crazy. He just kind of said, no, we, we hadn't considered doing that. Now, he did say that our mandate was price stability. And so kind of, hey, how do we how do we stretch the annual inflation rate to 4% when our actual mandate is price stability? Well, how are they making it 2%? I mean, if your mandate is price stability and now you're saying you want prices to rise by more than 2% a year, how does that fit the definition of stable? It doesn't. So once you've already bent the definition, once you've said that 2% a year inflation equals stability, well, then why not 4%, right? I mean, you've already gone down that road. It's just a question of degree. But I guess the Fed was uncomfortable letting the cat out of the bag. But of course, that's what's going to happen. I mean, ultimately, the target is going to be there. I mean, other because it's, it's going to be at 4% anyway. So what the Fed will have to do when inflation gets to 4% because it has no ability to bring it down since it has no tools to bring it down that wouldn't collapse the economy, it's going to have to pretend that it's okay, right? I mean, I've used this analogy before. If you are being chased out of town, get to the head of the crowd and pretend like you're leading the parade. And that's exactly what the Fed's going to want to do, right? If you can't beat them, join them. If inflation goes to 4% and they know they can't do anything about it, they have to at least pretend that it's okay because then that explains why they're not taking any action. Now, the real explanation is because they can't, but it takes the markets a long time to figure stuff out, like the fact that the Fed is now cutting rates, that it, it, it had to abort its uh, normalization process, and the fact that they're going to be cutting short quantitative tightening. And again, this is what everybody is missing. What the Fed is about to do and what the Fed basically confirmed that they're going to do in July, cutting rates, this proves that the Fed's policy of cutting rates before did not work, that their policy was a complete failure because the success of the policy was only going to be measured by their ability to normalize rates. So it's easy to take rates down to zero. What would have proved the Fed's policy to do that, its decision was successful, was their ability to normalize interest rates when the emergency was over. Well, the fact that we're having to preemptively cut rates, the fact that we're having to go to, go to rate cuts as an insurance policy when we're only at two and a quarter, and in order to keep this expansion going that was started by 0% rates, we already have to backtrack, that proves that normalization is impossible. And if you can never normalize rates, then cutting them to zero was a mistake, which is exactly what I said the minute the Fed did it. I knew that they once they made that mistake, there was no turning back. But for some reason, the market couldn't figure that out. The same thing with quantitative easing. I knew once the Fed blew up its balance sheet, there was no turning back, that it could never shrink it by any significant amount. And that is exactly what has been proven. The Fed is going to cut off quantitative tightening and go right back to quantitative easing. But why, right, if it's obvious that the policy failed, 
Why are they going to repeat it? Right? That's the definition of insanity, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the Fed doesn't actually expect a different result. It expects the same result, which is another bubble. But blowing another bubble doesn't solve the problem. It just solves the problem for politicians because it buys them some time to get reelected. It solves some problems maybe for the Fed to have to deal with the problem it created. But all this kicking the can down the road makes the problems much, much worse. But as I've been saying, the Fed is not going to get the same result. It is going to get a different result this time because I think that the amount of QE and cheap money that would be required to inflate a bubble large enough to compensate for the one that's about to pop is too big, that we overdose on stimulus and we kill the dollar. And that is what the markets are actually telling you is going to happen, right? The dollar is down today. The yield curve actually steepened, you know, as the Fed indicated it was going to reduce rates. Uh, So the long end, rates on the long end did not go down as much as rates on the shorter end. And I still believe that when the Fed finally gets around to cutting rates, yields on the long end are going to rise. They are not going to fall. Last time, yields plunged on the long end. This time, they're already down near low levels. So when the Fed goes back to QE again and cuts rates, the long end is actually going to rise. That is going to compound the problems for an overly leveraged economy. Corporations, individuals, state and local governments, everybody is going to suffer as long-term rates rise, even as the Fed is reducing short-term rates back to zero, and the dollar is going to tank. So we are going to see a surge in domestic inflation, in consumer prices. All of this is going to worsen the severity of the next recession. This is the opposite of what happened during the Great Recession, uh, where the Fed was able to move long-term rates down. The Fed was able to keep a lid on consumer prices because the dollar was so strong. Well, this time, the dollar is going to be weak, and that's going to blow the lid off of consumer prices, and they are going to rise. In fact, I was listening on CNBC today to Stephen Moore, who was on his way to meet with President Trump, who was basically saying that the Fed made a mistake, that they should have cut rates by 25 basis points today, as opposed to uh, punting it until, until July. But what Steve Moore was trying to say is, hey, why don't we cut rates? Because there's no inflation. There's no sign of inflation Why shouldn't we cut rates? Well, the problem is, first of all, there are signs of inflation, right? Inflation is moving up. In fact, we got inflation numbers that came out uh, from uh, Canada today. That's just north of the border. But I think we had the highest uh, core uh, uh, inflation since, I think it's 2.4 or 2.6. I forget the exact number, but it was the highest number since 2012. So we're starting to see uh, prices moving up north of the border higher. They're going to be moving up here, but there are plenty of signs. But Even if Stephen Moore was correct and prices weren't rising that fast, that's not a problem. It's not a problem that the Fed needs to solve by by cutting interest rates. Interest rates are too low, right? How could you argue that that, with that fact? When you got two and a quarter percent interest rates, two and a half percent interest rates, inflation is two, two and a half percent, that's zero percent rates. That's too low. How are you going to encourage savings in in an economy? You're not. Right. And in fact, as I said earlier, what the Fed is sustaining and what 
Stephen Moore wants the Fed to help sustain is the bubble. That's what needs rate cuts. It's the bubble that needs rate cuts. The real economy needs higher interest rates. That's what it needs. And when Powell says he wants to keep the expansion going, no. If you care about the economy, you want the expansion to end because it's not a real expansion. It's a bubble. The only way to have real economic growth is to deflate that bubble, is to allow asset prices to come down. We need to default on a lot of debt. We can't move forward dragging all this way to debt. Bad debt needs to be liquidated. Companies that are not profitable need to go out of business. People that are employed non-productively need to lose those jobs so they can find more productive jobs, right? Our trade deficits have to go away for legitimate purposes, for legitimate reasons. We have to be more productive. We have to produce more and we have to consume less. And interest rates have to be higher because we're not going to have more savings. We're not going to have more capital investment. We're not going to stop the consumer borrowing and spending without higher interest rates. So, right, you can't can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. You know, we're going to have to break a lot of eggs. But the Fed doesn't want that. And the reason that Stephen Moore doesn't want that is he wants Donald Trump to get reelected. He knows if we go through a badly needed recession to cleanse the economy of all the malinvestments that resulted from the Federal Reserve and their bad monetary policy, if we go through that cleansing process now, well, then that's also likely to cleanse Donald Trump out of the office and and, and put a socialist in. But the problem is it's not worth it to buy Trump a second term if we only have a bigger disaster you know, during his second term than the one that he would have had on the first. I'd rather go through it now while Trump's still in power where maybe we can do the right thing because part of the right thing, when the Fed allows this recession to run its course and allows interest rates to rise, we're going to have to have major cuts in government spending. Do you think we're going to get those under the Democrats? No, it's much better, much more likely that we'll get them now. We have to shrink dramatically government spending Uh, across the board, uh, particularly in entitlements. And we're probably going to have to restructure the national debt because we've simply borrowed too much money. We can't service the debt at higher interest rates. So we're going to have to default. All of this is necessary if we're ever going to go back to a real economy because we've loaded up the economy with so much debt that we can never have legitimate economic growth. You know, they keep on to talk talk about this new normal. This is not a new normal that we have 1% to 2% growth. We have this slow growth economy because we're dragging all this debt behind us. We got to get rid of this debt. Now, maybe the Fed thinks we can get rid of it by slowly inflating it away, but that's not going to work because the inflation is going to run out of control and we're going to end up with a hyperinflation that's going to be even worse than a legitimate debt default. Moving from uh, the Fed and Stephen Moore to Trump himself, you know, Donald Trump was down in Florida, I think it was Orlando. Last night, he gave a speech to officially kick off his 2020 uh, re-election bid. And you know, pretty much pretty typical Trumpian speech uh, where Donald Trump claimed that the U.S. now has the strongest economy in the history of the United States, right? Going all the way back to the uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence, right? The strongest the economy has ever been in all of those years is right now, right? And of course, 
if we now have the strongest economy in the history of America, well, Trump has succeeded in making America great again because we now have an economy that's greater than one that we've ever had ever had in the past, which, of course, couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, it is not even close to the greatest economy in history. It's not even the greatest economy in our lifetimes. Uh, and again, if this really was the greatest economy ever, right, the strongest economy ever, why is Donald Trump practically begging the Fed to cut rates, right? Why would a strong economy need lower rates than the low rates we already have? I mean, they're already extremely low by historical measures. So if we have such a strong economy, why do we need uh, so much monetary support? But apart from the monetary support, look at the fiscal stimulus that we have. We are running the biggest budget deficits in U.S. history. And of course, if you're a Keynesian, which of course Trump must be if he wants monetary stimulus, well, if, you, if you're a Keynesian, well, then you're already getting massive fiscal stimulus. I mean, not only are big budget deficits a sign that the economy is weak, because if the economy was really strong, we, the government would be flush with tax revenue and it wouldn't be spending as much money on anti-poverty programs. So normally, a strong economy produces a, a balanced budget or a budget surplus, right? Or at least the deficits would be shrinking in a strengthening economy. But we've got the opposite. We've got growing deficits, which is not indicative of a strengthening economy, but a weakening economy. But also those big deficits act as a stimulus, as a Keynesian uh, fiscal stimulus. Now, I don't believe in that. I don't believe it's a, it's a stimulus because I don't believe Keynesianism. I think it's a bunch of nonsense. But that's pretty much what most people think. And if you're looking at record amount of fiscal stimulus that we have right now, A, first of all, why would a strong economy need a record amount of fiscal stimulus? It wouldn't. But if we're already getting a record amount of fiscal stimulus, why do we also need monetary stimulus? If we need a double barrel of stimulus, if we need massive monetary stimulus and massive fiscal stimulus, then how do you square that with the greatest economy in the history of America. You can't, right? It's all hyperbole. It is all spin. This is Donald Trump's uh, platform, right? To just go out there and lie about how great the economy is. But, you know, even if you look at the polls right now, and nobody's really talking about this, Trump is losing to just about any of the Democrats in all of the key states that he narrowly won. Remember, a lot of these states that Trump won, right, these swing states that put him over the top, he barely won them, right? He didn't win in a landslide. I mean, you know, he barely won them. You know, he got fewer votes than Mitt Romney did. Mitt Romney got more votes uh, than Donald Trump. But Donald Trump won, right? He And he, he just barely won in a lot of states. He is losing by wide margins in all those states that he won that he needs to be reelected. Now, I understand, you know, a lot can happen between now and then. Yes, and what's probably going to happen is bad, right? The economy is better today than it will be on election day. Now, of course, that's not going to stop Trump from lying and pretending it's great because that's basically the reason to elect him. Now, the other reason to elect him, which may actually be a better reason, is to prevent socialism, right? So, uh, because the, his opponent is going to be a socialist and is, is going to want to remake America as a socialist nation. In fact, one of the funniest things about 
uh, his speech. I don't know if it was funny or just ironic. But during his speech, immediately after, Donald Trump said that um, Republicans will never allow America to become a socialist nation, right? The very next words out of his mouth, the next sentence was, we will protect Social Security and Medicare, and we will make sure that insurance companies, health insurance companies, cannot deny coverage to anybody with pre-existing conditions, right? So what he has basically said right out of his mouth is he supports all these socialist programs, even though Republicans don't want America to be a socialist nation. Well, if you believe in socialist programs, well, then you're turning America into a socialist nation. I mean, the fact of the matter is Trump supports the socialist programs that have been enacted in the past. He just says that he doesn't want to enact anymore, that we're as socialist as we're going to get, and we don't want to go anymore in that direction. Whereas you have uh, Bernie Sanders saying, well, we want to complete the New Deal. But here's the problem. See, once you argue that some socialism is okay, right? If you say, well, no, no, Social Security was a good idea, right? Medicare was a good idea. Obamacare was a good idea. I mean, because he's happy that we got rid of the mandate. But the real part of Obamacare, the key element of Obamacare was making sure that health insurance companies didn't deny people with pre-existing conditions uh, a policy. That was the goal of Obamacare. Now, the way they achieved it was with the mandate, because at least Obama was smart enough to know that once we tell insurance companies, you can't turn away anybody who's sick, well, then no one's going to buy insurance. Everyone's going to wait till they get sick and then buy it, which means it's not insurance at all. It's welfare, right? And so it wouldn't work. But the goal of Obamacare was so people who are sick can get an insurance company to cover their medical bills. But that's not what insurance companies are in business for. They're not in business to just pay medical bills. I mean, you couldn't stay in business if that's all you did is pay the medical bills of sick people. The way insurance companies stay in business is they collect premiums from a bunch of healthy people. And it's because you have all these healthy people paying premiums that they have money to pay the sick people. But if the only people who buy insurance are the sick people who need money, then the insurance companies are out of business, right? So that was the goal of Obamacare was, hey, how are we going to make sure that sick people are covered? Well, let's, let's force everybody to buy insurance. That's the only way to do it. We need a law to mandate that people buy insurance. Well, Obama, the Republicans got rid of that, but they left intact the core principle of Obamacare, which was to ban insurance companies from selling policies to people who are already sick. So this is a socialist program that the president supports. And not only does he support Social Security and Medicare, he doesn't want to cut them. He doesn't want to reform them. So if you're going to say these are great socialist programs and we love them, I don't even want to reform them, well, then why not more? Right? I mean, if these socialist programs are so good, why don't we have the other ones? Why don't we have, you know, universal basic income? Why don't we have social medicine? Why doesn't the government pay everybody's college? Why don't we have all these other socialist programs? If you if you love the socialist programs from the New Deal, well, you should love these other programs, right? That's, that's the problem where the Republican message is inconsistent. We love some socialist programs. We just don't want any more. The Democrats say, we love those socialist programs and we want more because if these work so well, then why not more? See, the Republicans are afraid to tell the truth about Social Security and Medicare, that they're disasters, that they didn't work well. 
right? That they're, that they're Ponzi schemes, that the whole things are going to implode. Nobody wants to tell the truth because everybody wants the votes of the people who are now collecting Social Security. Everybody wants the votes of the people who are now collecting Medicare. And of course, the people who are nearing uh, retirement age, who are about to start collecting, everybody wants their votes too. If you think about the, the Democrats, though, I mean, the Democrats are really appealing or trying to appeal to the young people, and they get a lot of the votes of the young people, but the people who are, are losing the most right now because of Social Security are the young people, right? Because they're paying all the taxes, and they're going to have to pay even higher taxes in the future so that the, the people who are currently collecting, who got into the pyramid scheme early, can keep getting checks, whereas they're going to get nothing. But you don't have any of the Democratic candidates talking about reforming Social Security to let the the young people off the hook. And the young people don't even get this. Everybody is afraid, right? They, they don't call it the third rail of politics for nothing, but it is going to make it harder uh, for Trump to defeat or argue against a, a socialist a Democrat when he's still defending socialism. But I think it will make it easier for the Democrats to beat Trump, and it may not be that difficult. But if they nominate somebody who believes in all these socialist programs, but still pretends to be a capitalist, right? Because that's normally what Democrats had done in the past, right? They're in favor of all these socialist programs. But then if you call them a socialist, oh, I'm not a socialist, right? I believe in capitalism. I believe in free enterprise. I just think that the government needs to step in and help, right? We need a mixed economy. We just can't have cutthroat uh, survival of the fittest right? Laissez-faire capitalism. We need to have capitalism with safeguards, right? And that's typically uh, what the Democrats have said. Uh, and so that's basically what they need to do. I mean, if the Democrats nominate somebody who is in favor of more government, just doesn't want to accept the label of socialism, right? But that's become a, a, a mantra. It's a, it's a popular label to have within the Democratic Party itself, Right? Because they've all been closet socialists, and now they're finally out of the closet, and they like that. But it's not going to necessarily resonate with the midsection, the middle of America, the independents, who still you know, know how bad socialism is. But if the economy is as weak as it could be, then even a socialist, an outright avowed, branded socialist, could beat Trump. But the Democrat who would definitely beat Trump for sure, no matter what, is a Democrat who's a socialist, but is in the closet. They could advocate socialist programs like Social Security, Medicare, but just not accept that brand. Reject socialism in favor of the, the same mixed economy uh, that Democrats have always advocated, just further to the left. Now, I was watching the president's speech on Fox News. And of course, as soon as the president finished speaking, it was Sean Hannity that was on, and he was just gushing praise over uh, President Trump and how great the speech was and how great the economy was. And again, you know, this is going to be the Republicans' biggest downfall, uh, even worse so than when they went down uh, with the ship with, with George Bush, is you're embracing a president who has simply presided over a bubble. And the bubble pops, and now it's a repudiation of those policies. And so this is going to be so uh, destructive uh, to the Republican Party and the message of, you know, free market capitalism and uh, lower taxes and less government. But, you know, one of the funny things uh, that Hannity said as he was praising Trump and, and criticizing Barack Obama, right? He was talking about how bad everything was when Obama was president and how great everything is now when Trump is president. 
even though there's really no difference other than the fact that we did get a tax cut last year. And that tax cut provided a temporary boost to GDP and it caused, um, you know, optimism. It caused people to be, uh, you know, more optimistic about the future. But the effect of that deficit finance tax cut is already wearing off. And the air, uh, the extra air that was blown into the bubble is already starting to come out. So we haven't accomplished anything uh, by electing Donald Trump. But according to Hannity, it's night and day that it was a disaster when, when uh, Obama was president. And it's, and it's fantastic now. And three things in particular that he called out Obama on. One of the things he said, he said Obama ran up the deficits, that Obama added more debt to the U.S. economy than all the other presidents combined, which is true. He did that. But Donald Trump, in the two years that he is in office, is running bigger deficits than Obama did. Right? If you take the average deficit, not, not even the official deficits, you have to look at the amount by which the national debt goes up during the year. And if you take how much the national debt has increased since Trump was inaugurated, right, and divide it by the number of months he's been president, that he is averaging larger deficits per month than Obama did during his eight years, which means if that kept up, if Trump was actually president for an entire eight years, he would add a lot more debt than Barack Obama did. So if you're going to criticize Barack Obama for deficit spending, how can you not also criticize Donald Trump for doing the same thing? And at least a lot, the bigger deficits that were run under Obama happened in his first term during the Great Recession. So if you believe in Keynesianism, which again, I don't, but if you do, then you can't fault uh, Obama for running deficits during the worst recession since the Great Recession. A depression. But if you compare the deficits under Trump, right, to the deficits during the second term of Obama, it's, you know, we're, we're like triple. I mean, I mean, double or triple. I'm not, so they're off the charts now. What is Trump's excuse? If you're upset that Obama ran big deficits during a recession, why aren't you even more upset at Trump for running even larger deficits when the economy is supposedly good? I mean, if the economy is good, this is the time to cut the deficits. This is the time to cut government spending, especially if you're a Republican. If you are a Republican, how can you be praising Donald Trump for not taking advantage of a strong economy to cut government spending? How can you not um, be upset at President Trump for not using the backdrop of a strong economy and the political capital that he has to reform entitlements, to do things that we could never do with a Democratic president or a Democratic Congress. When the Republicans are in charge, we should finally be doing all the things that Republicans have pretended they wanted to do all these years, but they couldn't do it because they didn't have the White House or they didn't have Congress. Now, of course, we don't have the House anymore, but we did for two years. We had the House, we had the Senate, we had the White House. A lot of good things could have been done. Instead, nothing was done. So Hannity is completely inconsistent. You look like a hypocrite if you're going to chastise Obama because he ran big deficits and then praise Trump, who's running even bigger deficits when the economy is growing as opposed to when it was in a recession. That was the first thing. Then Hannity specifically pointed out uh, that 
Barack Obama did not have a single year where the economy grew at 3%. We didn't have one year where we did 3%. Okay, well, neither is Trump. I mean, come on. I mean, last year we got 2.9%. Obama got 2.9%. I forget which year, but he had a year we had 2.9%. So Trump's had one year of 2.9%. That's the same as Obama. I mean, the economy is growing no faster under Trump. Now, did it grow this year faster than the last year for Trump? Yes, because we just got a tax cut and that and that gave us a temporary boost. But 20, 2019 is going to be a sharp reduction of GDP growth. And so will 2020. The high watermark of Trump's first term when it comes to GDP growth is going to be 2.9%. That's going to tie the best uh, GDP growth numbers that Obama got. So if you're going to criticize Obama because he never got a year above 3%, well, you can't praise Trump because Trump's never had a year above 3% either. He's in the same hole as Obama. Now, granted, he's only been in office for a couple of years, right? Obama had eight years and he couldn't make it, right? So maybe Trump will make it, but it's premature to praise Trump for an accomplishment that he hasn't accomplished yet, right? And that based on where the economy is headed now, he's not likely to accomplish because the economy has already peaked. We're already slowing down, moving into recession. That's why the Fed is about to cut rates. The Fed is not about to cut rates because the economy is booming. If the Fed thought the economy was going to keep growing in excess of 3%, it wouldn't be cutting rates. It would be raising rates. The reason the Fed is raising rates is because the peak of growth is in the rearview mirror. And staring through the windshield is recession. So again, hypocrisy on the part of Hannity uh, to praise Trump and criticize Obama when they're both uh, have the same problem. And then the other thing that he said was the labor force participation rate. He mentioned about how we had such a low labor force participation rate when Obama was president, which is true. We have the same low labor force participation rate now. The labor force participation rate has not gone up. Now, granted, it hasn't gone down. It's pretty much the same. It went down when um, Obama was president. But most of that decline happened in the first term, right, during the Great Recession. During Obama's second term, the labor force participation rate was relatively stable, which is how it's been under Trump. So Trump hasn't changed anything. Nothing Donald Trump has done has drawn more workers back into the workforce. We haven't seen a boom in labor force participation rate. So if you're going to criticize Obama because the labor force participation rate was low, how do you praise Trump when it's still low? I mean, the problem is we don't really get news anymore on these new channels. I mean, basically, no matter what Trump does, it's great if Fox is reporting it. And no matter what he does, it's lousy if MSNBC or CNN is reporting it. And everything Obama did was great if it's being reported uh, you know, by CNN or CBS and everything he did was awful if it's being reported by Fox News. And, you know, I don't like the fact that our news outlets are simply, uh, you know, propaganda machines for government. I mean, they're, 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 they're all expressing partisan opinions. So nobody is really getting news. They're, ju they're just getting opinion masquerading as news and it's all biased. You know, that's why people have to listen uh, to uh, to me. They got to listen to my podcast because even though I am Republican over Democrat or Libertarian. I'm a conservative. I call them as I see them. If somebody on the Republican side 
is making a mistake, I don't let them pass because they're a Republican. I don't praise them for doing something bad. If somebody on the right, if a Republican is doing something bad, I'm going to call them out on it. I'm going to criticize them. And what I don't like is when other Republicans or conservatives who should know better, right, you know, when they just cheerlead and, and praise a Republican president simply because he's a Republican. And, and, and because then when we have the problems, you know, our solutions uh, are meaningless. We have no credibility if we do that. We have to be consistent and we have to be critical when criticism is warranted and only praise conduct or policies that are actually worthy of that praise. Oh, I wanted to mention too, I know it's kind of late notice, but if you're in the New York area, I am going to be doing the keynote talk tomorrow at the Benzinga Trading and Investment Summit in New York City. It's at the Sheridan New York Times Square Hotel. Um, so I guess you can go on the website to get your tickets. It's BenzingaTradingSummit.com. It's a one-day conference. I am the keynote speaker. I think I'm speaking around 1, 1.30. Uh, and so it should be a good talk because this is really going to be my first public talk since the Fed has now officially moved to an easing bias. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to have a lot to say. So you, if you live in the New York area, I'm not really sure what they charge uh, for the event, uh, but make sure and be there. I'm going to have my son Spencer is going to be with me. So I know I've talked about him on this show. And so he's going to be down at the conference uh, as well. So you'll have a chance to, to meet me and to, and to meet my son. Almost forgot to talk a little bit too about the markets and how they reacted to the, uh, the Fed's uh, decision and to the statement uh, the press conference, pretty much not much action in the stock market. The Dow was up about 40 points before uh, the 2 p.m. announcement, and it closed up 38. Uh, I think the highest I saw it get after the announcement was up maybe 80, 90 points, and it never really went negative. I think maybe it was up 10 or 20. So I think it kind of went out near the low end of where it traded. In fact, it traded in a very, very narrow range all day. The biggest movement, I think, was in the dollar, uh, which was down about uh, 20, 20 basis points or 20 ticks on the uh, dollar index before the announcement. And then it sold off to down about 50 after the announcement. I think the dollar index settled down about 40. Uh, so a relatively weak day, not a disastrous day, uh, but a weak day for the dollar. Bonds, as I said, bond, bond market rose. We're actually Yields were actually higher on the day. So bonds were lower before the Fed announcement came out. And as soon as we got the, the announcement, uh, bond market turned around. In fact, the 10-year yield made a new low for the year. We got all the way down to 2.02%. So getting very, very close to breaking below 2% for the 10-year yield. The yield on the 30-year down, but not as much. The yield there is 2.54. So that, that spread continues to widen. The yield curve continues to uh, widen between the 10 and the 30. And that is going to blow out. I mean, especially once the Fed really starts cutting rates, you're going to see that gap really begin to widen. But I think it's going to happen as rates are moving up. I don't think we're going back down to 1% on the 10-year. I think it's more likely to hit 3% than 1%. But I think it's more likely to do that while the Fed is easing and printing money, right? Last time, uh, the, the rates were able to move down, but that's because the dollar was strengthening. The dollar is not going to strengthen uh, next time. The dollar is going to fall through the floor. Gold made the, the nicest move. In fact, gold 
early this morning, it was down. I think it was maybe down five, six, seven bucks at one point in the morning. Just before we got the Fed decision, the price of gold was pretty flat to down maybe a dollar or two. And then as soon as we got uh, the, the announcement, gold spiked and it went up about maybe nine, 10 bucks at the highs. And then it retraced almost all the gains. Uh, and it was only up maybe two or three bucks. But then late in the day, we had a rise in the price of gold. And as I am recording this right now, we're actually above 1360. We're 1360 spot three zero. We're up about $14 on the day. And about half of those gains were registered after the close of the U.S. stock market. So once the U.S. stock market closed or as the closing bell was ringing, we saw the beginning of the run up and then it continued. And this is the highest gold has really closed the New York session uh, of the year. And we actually have taken out the high now, uh, which I think was about 1357, 1358. That was the high number that we got before we got that better than expected retail sales number. And the only thing that was better was the revisions from the April. But the market wasn't prepared for that. And so the gold market sold off. But once again, we're back knocking on resistance's door. We really need to get above like 1370, 1375, which we are very, very close to. And then we're going to be off to the races uh, when it comes to gold. Now, I'm going to finish up this podcast. Once again, I keep on ending uh, talking about Bitcoin, but Bitcoin has been all over the news this week because yesterday Facebook released its white paper on its new cryptocurrency, Libra. And so everybody's been reporting on it. And, and pretty much as I expected, all the reporting is wrong. You know, pretty much all of the articles I'm reading and all of the coverage on like CNBC, when you relate this to Bitcoin, is that this is bullish for Bitcoin, right? Uh, exactly what I said was going to happen. They are spinning this as it's great news, right? It's another major company adopting cryptocurrency, validating the concept, validating blockchain. And this is great. You know, institutions are coming in. And so this just validates everything about Bitcoin. And so this is good for Bitcoin. And so you should buy Bitcoin because this is going to help Bitcoin. And maybe this is going to be a transition there. You know, once people get their foot in the door, maybe a lot of people are going to test the waters uh, with Libra. And once they go from, uh, you know, regular money to cryptocurrencies, well, the next step will be from Libra to Bitcoin. And so it's going to be like a gateway to Bitcoin. And so this is all great, right? And this is all a bunch of nonsense. Read that white paper. I did. I read the entire thing. It is a complete repudiation of Bitcoin. That's what it is. Yes, they are saying we think there is potential in blockchain and we think there is potential in cryptocurrencies, but we don't see any potential in the cryptocurrencies that already exist because they don't work uh, because Bitcoin cannot be used as a medium of exchange because it's not a unit of account. Uh, and it's too volatile to be used as a medium of exchange, right? It just doesn't work. And it's not a store of value because the price can collapse at any minute because it's not tied to anything. So what Facebook said Libra is trying to do is to create digital currency that is backed by real assets. Now, of course, the real assets that are backing it are going to be dollars and euros and yen and Swiss francs and you know, government securities that are denominated in those assets. And basically what Facebook is saying is that 
Facebook is going to act as a bank or this new company that they're setting up, right? It's not Facebook. It's a, it's a new company uh, um, that's going to be created and it's got investors and the people who are investing, you got, you got uh, Visa, you got MasterCard, you got PayPal. And it makes sense that Visa and MasterCard would want in on this because if this is successful, it's going to bite into their business because what Zuckerberg is trying to create is money of the internet where the transaction costs of buying and selling will be much lower than the transaction costs of using credit cards uh, or other more traditional forms of payment. And the reason that the transaction costs are going to be low is because they're not going to have charges for transactions because what's going to happen is Facebook or the company is going to earn interest on all their deposits. They're basically going to be making loans and collecting interest. They may even start making mortgages or other kinds of loans, but basically this new entity is going to be a bank and instead of deposits, they're going to issue their depositors cryptocurrency, right? And so it's going to be like having cash in the bank, right? It's not going to pay you any interest, right? Because you're not depositing it in a CD or anything. You just have this cash in your digital wallet but backing up that cash is the dollars or the euros or the yen that were used to buy it. Because the only way that you can increase the supply of Libra is to increase the reserves. You have to infuse the reserves with additional uh, currency in order for new cryptocurrency to be issued. And if a holder of that currency, let's say a merchant, and I think there's going to be certain companies that are authorized uh, to deal uh, directly with the company, they can take their Libra and they can turn them in and get currencies. They can probably pick, you know, whichever ones they want, but they can redeem in currency. And then those new, those uh, Liras would be burned. So the supply of Liras is going to expand and contract based on the value of the reserves. And therefore, it's going to be a very stable cryptocurrency. And because it's stable, it's going to be very easy for companies to price products in Libra. Now, of course, the Libra is going to change in price every day relative to each currency because it's not pegged to any one currency. It's pegged to a basket. But the volatility will likely be very low relative to those currencies. And I think what could certainly happen in the future and something that has never happened with Bitcoin and can happen is online merchants will actually price their products in Libra. This is one Libra. This is 10 Libra. This is 15 Libra, whatever it is. And you'll be able to pay in Libra. And they'll be able to collect Libra. And they'll be able to hold Libra. They'll be able to use the Libra uh, to pay other, you know, other suppliers or other companies. I mean, the whole idea is Facebook wants to get everybody transacting in these Libras and never actually redeeming them. So they can take the reserves and invest them and earn a return. In other words, they're going to act like a bank, right? And this, this model will work. The only thing that would screw it up is the government, right? If the government doesn't want to do it and imposes too much rules and regulations on compliance that make it impossible, but if they can get through the compliance, regular, this is going to work. Now, of course, the people in the Bitcoin community, again, they want to dismiss all this and say, well, Bitcoin was never supposed to be a medium of exchange anyway. Bullshit. Yes, it was. I remember all the arguments that people were making at the beginning. It only became digital gold by default. When it failed that its original objective, the fallback position was, well, okay, it's a store of value. But if you are not 
a viable medium of exchange, if you're never going to be the, the, the money of the internet, exactly what value do you have to store? Nothing. Now, of course, the other thing that the crypto uh, people are saying is, well, this is no good because it's not really a store of value because it's backed by the euro and the yen and, and, and the dollar, which is true. It is not a long-term store of value. I mean, it's no more a long-term store of value than any of those currencies. But those currencies work as a medium of exchange and as a unit of account because over the short run, over days, weeks, months, they store their value. That's not true for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is much too volatile. So yes, they are not a true long-term store of value. And of course, since you can't earn interest on them, by definition, they're like having cash, right? At least if I have dollars, I can put them in the bank and earn you know, 2% interest or something like that, or 1% interest. Having a Libra is like having dollars stuffed into your mattress. So obviously, you're not going to hold a large quantity of Libras in your account and earn no interest while inflation slowly erodes away the value. You can certainly hold a small amount, just like you hold a small amount of cash in your wallet, or you might have some money on, in your PayPal account. So people can hold enough uh, uh, Libra in order to transact, but you're not going to have your retirement savings in Libra because it'll be eaten up through inflation. But that's not what they're trying to create. They're trying to create a more efficient medium of exchange. Now, if you happen to live in a country that has lots of inflation, right? High inflation country, right? You have a very weak uh, fiat currency, right? Much weaker than the dollar. Then you can put your savings here because it's better than the alternative. If you live in Venezuela, putting your savings in Libra is much better than leaving them in pesos, right? And it's going to be a lot easier to transact. A lot of, you know, countries in, let's say, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, right? They're, this is going to make sense for them. Even though they're getting no interest, that's better than negative interest, right? And of course, you know, there are negative interest rates prevailing right now. Now, of course, this would be a lot more profitable and will be a lot more profitable for Facebook and the investors in Libra when interest rates go up because then they can earn a better return. But <clears throat> there's not going to be any deposit insurance backing this up. So I would imagine that the reserves are going to be quite high, that the actual amount that Facebook is going to loan out relative to its, its total reserves will be smaller than banks. So I think that it will be more solvent than a typical bank uh, that is you know, leaning on the crutch of deposit insurance. So it can take all kinds of crazy risks. And they have to make sure they keep enough adequate reserves so that if a number of their customers take the Libra and they want dollars or euros, they got to make sure they have the cash on hand because they don't want to have a run on the bank. So I do think that uh, it will probably operate. It will have to operate on much sounder lending principles than your typical bank uh, that is the beneficiary of the positive terms. But of course, what would make it better would be if Facebook did this but instead of the reserves being fiat currencies, the reserves were gold. Now, of course, they could include a gold component right now. I mean, they could have said, we're going to have 5% gold, we're going to have 10% gold, but they chose not to do that because gold has no yield, right? And gold has a storage fee, and they're trying to generate a return on their portfolio, and so they don't want to own gold. But my feeling is that as we start to experience much higher inflation, around the world, as the dollar starts to fall and other fiat currencies start losing value, that they could change the composition of their reserves and they can include gold whenever they want. I mean, just because gold is not part of the reserves now, these reserves are being managed and they can certainly change. But 
what this does is it opens the door because if the regulators allow uh, Facebook to do this, if they allow Facebook to issue a, a, a digital currency backed by real reserves, right? And the reserves happen to be fiat currencies, but if they, if they allow that, then they have to allow competition. And that's one of the knocks on Facebook right now. Say you're too dominant, we need more competition. So if they allow this to happen, they have to allow competition. They have to allow other companies to introduce their own cryptocurrencies. And once you're going to have companies introducing cryptocurrencies, the only way they're going to work is if they're backed by something. The ones like, like Bitcoin can never work. I mean, sure, right now it works just like any Ponzi scheme, right? Just like any, any pyramid scheme. As long as people want to buy it because they think it's going to work, right? Then the price can keep going up but eventually it's going to collapse. And what's happening with Facebook is going to eat in to the Bitcoin story because part of the allure, part of the hype of getting people to buy Bitcoin is the potential that it's going to, it's going to serve as a medium of exchange and a store of value for the unbanked in high inflation countries. No, it's not because now they have a much better alternative, which would be the Facebook coin, right? Or other companies that would come out with similar coins. So this really is gonna be one of the things that lets the air out of the Bitcoin sale. But the point I'm trying to make is if the regulators allow cryptocurrencies backed by fiat currency, then they have to allow cryptocurrencies backed by gold because it's the same principle. And that solves all the problems. Because if you back your cryptocurrency by gold, Right. Not only do you have a viable medium of exchange and unit of account, but you have a long-term store of value, right? Because gold is a long-term store of value. So all of the problems that the crypto community, all the Bitcoin lovers see with fiat currencies, they're solved with gold. And the only reason they don't want a gold-backed cryptocurrency is because that one's not going to the moon, right? They want a cryptocurrency that can go to a million dollars. They want to get rich on Bitcoin, so they have to convince themselves that gold doesn't work anymore because Bitcoin is better, right? So not only would the, the, the crypto crowd uh, say that a cryptocurrency backed by dollars and euros is no good, they're also going to say that a cryptocurrency backed by gold is no good when a cryptocurrency delivers on all the promises that Bitcoin fails on. The only difference is that, you know, you have third parties, that it's not decentralized. But so what? I'd rather have real assets in the custody of a third party that I trust than own nothing and just pretend on a bubble and a bunch of miners, right? That whole thing is absurd. And by the way, you know, I've gotten a lot of comments again on my Facebook page or on my Twitter page when I posted some articles about Bitcoin and Facebook and Libra. And I got to say this, you know, the, the stuff that the pro-Bitcoin people say is the most ridiculous nonsense I think I've ever heard. I think the people who are caught up in this bubble are basically saying stuff that is more irrational, right, than uh, I've ever heard by people who are caught up in the dot-com bubble or the housing bubble. Like, I remember one guy's comment uh, when I talked about how, you know, there's, you know, it, it really isn't scarce. The guy comes back and he says, well, gold isn't scarce either. I mean, because there's an infinite... Uh, a number of metals out there. And so since there's an infinite number of metals, well, gold doesn't have any value, which is, I mean, think about that lunacy, an infinite number of metals. I think there's 95 metals on the periodic table. I mean, that's not infinity. 
that's only 95. But not a single one of those metals has the properties of gold. They can't be used for the same thing that gold could be used for. But every other digital currency that can be created, I, they can create an infinite number of digital currencies that are exactly like Bitcoin, right? That have every property to Bitcoin. Now, it wouldn't be Bitcoin, but it, it would be just like Bitcoin, right? So if I can come up with another metal that did everything gold was, right, but wasn't gold, well then, okay, now you would have to add that to the gold supply. If there was another metal that had the identical properties to gold, but wasn't gold, right, then that would effectively increase the gold supply. Well, if I have a cryptocurrency that is identical to Bitcoin, it doesn't matter if it's not Bitcoin and it can't use the Bitcoin network. It could use a different network, right? Or potentially it could use the same network. I mean, these, the, you know, other cryptocurrencies, these altcoins, I mean, once you're set up for one, you can get set up for all of them. There is nothing unique. There are things that are unique about gold that other metals don't have. Other, they don't have those properties. All the other cryptocurrencies can have the same properties as Bitcoin. But that is just one example. This nonsense about there being infinite number of metals. Like everything I'm hearing and reading that people are saying, they want to criticize me because I don't get it, right? And a lot of them want to say, well, you know, it's because I sell gold. Look, shift gold probably gives me less than 5% of my income comes from, from selling gold. The most of my income comes from my asset management company and my own personal investments. So the amount of my income that I get that is derived by selling gold is small. And I'm selling gold because I think it's a, people should own it. I think people should be buying it. That's what I'm doing. And if I thought people should be buying Bitcoin instead, I'd be telling them, right? If I believed in Bitcoin, I'd own a bunch of them, right? I mean, I would, I'd be buying it. I'm not. You know, there are a lot of people that are trying to pretend that I own Bitcoin secretly. You know, I mean, I look, I wish I did. I wish I did buy Bitcoin because if I'd have bought it, I'd have bought it a long time ago. I certainly wouldn't be buying it now. I probably would have sold it all by now, right? I'd be, I would have cashed out if I had bought it early on, um, but I didn't, right? I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think the bubble would get this big, but that doesn't mean I was wrong. I've been right about Bitcoin the whole time. The people who have been wrong are the people who own it. Now, if they sell, then they can make a lot of money. It was a good speculation, but if they still own it when it collapses, when it goes down to zero because they think it's going to a million and they never want to sell it, well, then they were wrong. It doesn't matter if they have some paper profits if they end up losing them all when the music stops.